at uh, Rockfish Valley. And um, yeah, just getting the opportunity, as Mike said, I'll, I'll be graduating here in May, at least that is the plan. And uh, just uh, really discerning as to what is next, and so I'm thankful for opportunities like this, just to uh, come and, and teach the Bible and, and meet some new friends as well. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I want to just uh, give my congratulations to, to Justin and his family and their uh, new edition of, uh, of Baby Owen. And so uh, Justin and I, we've been in conversation, and uh, he said, you know, my wife's expecting here in the month of October, so would you be uh, willing to come, you know, uh, at, at some point? I said, yeah, that, w- that would be totally great. And so we had touched base earlier in the week, and he said, no baby yet. Uh, but then on Thursday, uh, he said, uh, you know, baby's coming. And so uh, could, you, um, could you come? You know, he sent me that through email, and I said, yeah, that would that'd be terrific. Um, so as I was mentally preparing, you know, for, for coming up here and all, I, I guess I was just thinking about it, and uh, on Friday night, I, ha- I had a dream. It was kind of an odd dream. Uh, I, I had a dream that I was, I was preaching. I wasn't here, but I was at my home church. And just things were just going about as wrong as they could have gone in this dream. So I, I get up on the stage, and my attire is, is not exactly right. Uh, I'm really tall, and so the podium, for some reason, was really low down to the floor. And I had my notes. I, I, I was ready to go. And, and somehow there's you know, dreams are crazy, you don't know how they happen, you just kind of go along with it while you're in there, but there's a paper shredder on the stage, okay, and all but the first couple pages of my notes are shredded to pieces, I'm like, what in the world do I do? Uh, so thankfully, none of those things, I don't see a paper shredder anywhere around here, and so it looks like we're, we're, we're good to go, uh, but uh, yeah, so that was, that was interesting, uh, but uh, as I, um, Come to share God's word this morning with us. Um, you can open your, up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Um, and so um, this is kind of interesting. I know it's football season, and uh, we're, we're about halfway into the season as far as this college football goes. And perhaps you, you've seen this, but there, there's a particular football team um, that their field looks particularly different because it's blue. Uh, you've ever seen the Boise State Broncos. Um, they, they have blue and white colors, blue, white, and orange colors. Um, but then the football field itself is all blue. So that's, that's kind of interesting, kind of unique. Caught me off guard the first time I saw it. Uh, but Boise State takes pride in their blue football field. They have actually patented um, the right to a blue football field. So if you, you, if you start a school and you, know, you want to have a football team, you can't have a blue football field unless you get permission from Boise State. Uh, they've only given one other school my, uh, permission to actually do that. Uh, and, and so but what, what is really interesting about this is sometimes ducks are uh, in the, flying in the air see this blue football field, and they mistake it as a lake or a body of water, all right? And so from time to time, there are ducks found on the football field uh, thinking they're going into a lake. Now, there was a myth that ducks would actually fly into the lake plunging headfirst into their desk thinking that was a body of water but only finding some artificial grass. That's not true actually. But from time to time, as I said, there are ducks who are found on this football field as they think they are going into a lake. And so as these ducks come onto the lake, they, they get there, and yeah, yeah they, you have to just imagine what they're thinking, you know. There's some f- funny little internet memes kind of as to what they're thinking, you know, like, there's no fish here, you know, that kind of thing. But they got to be thinking, okay, um, how did I get here? Like, how did I get to this spot? And, and I believe as, as followers of Christ, we, we tend to get there as well, especially a, after we're, we're following God, we're seeking to do His will in our lives, but then we, then we sin, then we mess up, and we think, okay, 
how did I get here? And how do I get out? Like, what, what, what do I do? Because we know that, yes, Jesus has died to save us from our sins. But then we think, okay, how do I have the ability to stop sinning now? And, and so I want to pose this question to you as we uh, ponder this morning. Um, this question, if I love God and want to obey him, why do I still continue to sin? Why do I still continue to sin? And how can I gain victory over the sins that I am the most prone to commit? So let me just pray for us as we begin this morning. Uh, Father God, I pray that as we open up your word, I pray that you would open up our hearts and that we would uh, just seek to hear from you and not only uh, just to gain knowledge or facts, but just for that to go deeper into our hearts and for our lives to change as a result, God. So we thank you for your grace uh, that enables us to change. And I pray that uh, we would depend on, on that as the transforming uh, agent into which we become more like you. So we do pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So as we come to the uh, book of Romans, before, before we hit chapter 6, I, I want to trace this back a little bit just to uh, look at the context uh, of how these particular verses do fit into the entire argument of the book, and it has to how that also applies to our lives today. So you look at the book of Romans, and essentially it's, it's an argument. Uh, it, it's, it's an argument, uh, and what is interesting is that, that uh, law, actually law schools have actually used the book of Romans as a method uh, of actually uh, arguing. So they, they, they trace the methodology of how uh, an argument is traced and how evidences are, are brought about. Uh, and the conclusions are made. And, and so, uh, really, the, the, the argument is, is the righteousness of God and how we as people can actually have that. Uh, how we can be made right before God, how we can stand before Him. And, and so, as this argument is, is fleshed out, Paul really gets into the details of that, um, beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 18. In, in chapter 1, verse 18, I invite you to turn there. We're just going to go through this um, briefly. And, and, and as we do that, we, we see that God says, okay, uh, all men are destined for God's wrath because all men are destined for God's wrath is they don't have his righteousness to stand before him. And so he pretty much puts men into four different categories. And the first category is found in chapter 1 from verses 18 into the end of the chapter there in verse 32. And this could be described as the pagan man. And this is the guy who really doesn't care much about God. He lives pretty much like a practical atheist. Um, he, he's not concerned about God's authority in his life, uh, the things that he commands him to do. And so he willingly does those things, and he also encourages others to do the same. All right, so we can, we can understand that, why a person like this would be destined for God's wrath. All right, but then we get to the second, uh, the second category, the second man, and that's um, from chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And, and, and this is the good, the good man, the good guy. And this is someone who perhaps goes to Sunday school, goes to church, goes to prayer meeting, and, and from the outside, everything looks like it's all right. But from the inside, uh, there, there, there's a deeper problem, there's a deeper issue. And, and, and the scripture says here that this guy is just as guilty as the second guy because uh, he judges others, yet he does the same thing um, that, that he's judging other people for. And so his sin just isn't as obvious, right? Even the things that look... Okay, on the outside, they're not on the inside. And, and then we get to the third category here, and, and Paul actually talks about the, the Jew. 
from verse, chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 8. And, and he says that the Jews are guilty because they've been hypocrites. They've relied on their spiritual heritage. They've relied even on their personal works to make them right with God. And that was the temptation. Um, having this rich spiritual heritage and just thinking, okay, just because you know, I'm, I'm part of God's people, then I personally am okay. But that really is, is not the case. And to parallel that to today, sometimes you may be talking to someone, um, or, or, or perhaps this has been you in your life, you, you, know, you, you think, okay, just because my grandmother had faith, or just because my parents had faith, then I naturally have faith. But that that's, doesn't make us anyone right, from, right with God. Uh, it must be our commitment to believe. And so we see that there. And then uh, the, the fourth man, so to speak, is found in chapter 3, verses uh, 9 until verse 20. And, and really he just synthesizes his argument and says, all men are ultimately uh, guilty before God because none is righteous, no, not one. We see that in chapter 3, uh, verse 10. So we see here that we are all sinners and that no one is, is essentially off the hook of judgment. Uh, and no matter who we are, where we came from, uh, we have all sinned, and therefore, we are guilty. Um, but then, uh, there, there's a transition that's made, a very key transition in chapter 3, verse 21. Um, and it goes from condemnation, uh, to being declared guilty before God, to justification. And essentially, that means ha- how we become right with God. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we see here that the righteousness of God has been manifested. And this essentially means it's been revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed. We, we see uh, what he means here uh, in the following verses of 22 to 24. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the righteousness of God can only be found in one place, and it can only be found in one person, and that is the person of Christ. And and that righteousness is available to anyone, to anyone who believes. So this is fascinating because when, when we come to receive Christ, when a person puts their, play, their faith in Jesus, their legal status before God changes. We're, we're all guilty before God because none of us is righteous. We've all sinned, either internal or external acts. Um, but once we put our faith in Christ for salvation, we, we, we are seen just like Jesus. We are seen as someone who would never sin and someone who would actually obey God perfectly, just as Jesus did. And so then at the, at the end of time on Judgment Day, those people who belong to Christ will stand before God and, and, and their record uh, of their sins that they have committed in their life, the times they've blessed, uh, been envious, been greedy, stolen, those things will not be put on their account. They will not be held accountable for those things. But instead they will be seen by God as someone who obeyed him perfectly and never ever sinned. They will be seen through God's lens just as Jesus was. They will be seen as Christ. And so we are, we are identified with him and we are actually given his righteousness. It's like, a, it's like a robe. God puts the righteousness of Jesus on us and that's the lens through which 
he sees us. And so, and this is just an incredible truth, as, as, we, as we see that God declares us right. It's not based on anything that we have done or that we could do, but only through our faith in what Christ has done for us. And so, we think about this and we, we say, yes, this is great, but what about the present sin in my life now? What do I do with that? What, what, what do I do with the temptation and the propensity that draws me towards the way that my life looked before I met Jesus? Because that's a reality that we all struggle with. And so Paul gets to that. He gets to how we are to deal with that. So we go from condemnation, how we are guilty before God, to justification, how God makes us right before him. And then beginning in chapter 6, we see sanctification, and essentially how we become like God, how our life changes in the here and now and the day-to-day of everyday life. So uh, we'll be in Romans 6, 1 through 14. Thanks for your patience with me. I feel like that was important just to establish a, a backdrop of what we're coming into this morning. So beginning in Romans uh, 6, verses 1, and we'll read through verses 5 here. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, the first thing we see is that those who know Christ are united with him in his death and in his resurrection. We'll, we'll flesh out a little bit as to what that means, but as we see at the beginning here, Romans 6, 1, Paul has a question. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and, and what he's getting at here, he, he's answering a question that he knows his, his readers would have been wondering, because through the end of chapter 3, on through chapter 5, he talks about how we were made right with God, as we just discussed, and how the fact that there's nothing that we can do to be made right before God, nothing in our own personal efforts, it's just believing. It takes faith in what Jesus has done. But Paul knows that there would be people who say, okay, well, if, if, if there's nothing you can do to attain God's salvation, then, then what about works does really matter as to way you, the way you live because your status before God never changes. Like, couldn't you just sin and it doesn't really matter? And he says, no. He says, no, not by any means. That's what we see actually in, in verse 2. And the phrase itself is interesting because it's actually a, a double negative in, in the original language. So we can't do that in English. We can't say, you know, we, we ain't never done that before, all right? Well, we could, but it's not correct grammar, all right? But in the original, it was, it was a good thing to basically say no twice. And so it's the idea of saying never, ever think that way. Because we who belong to Christ are dead to sin. And because we are dead to sin... Therefore, our, our lives should not be characterized by it. We should not live in sin. And so, I want to think about this. How, how, how do we view God's grace? How, how do you personally view God's grace in your own life? Uh, uh, do you see that as a license to sin? Because, hey, God has forgiven me, then I can live whatever way I want to? Or, or, or perhaps it's this way. Perhaps you, you see 
Christian life is more of a legal code in which you must be following in order to be made right with God. Because either end of the spectrum is really doing the same thing, and it's abusing God's grace and not receiving it. And so if you see God's grace as a license to sin, then you may not really have salvation um, because that's not what a, a, a life dedicated to Christ really produces. It produces a desire for holiness and to walk with God and to forsake your old way of life. I heard a preacher say it this way. He, says, he said, people come to me all the time and basically say, I have a new relationship with God. But I say, do you have a new relationship with sin? Because if you do not have a new relationship with sin, you don't have a relationship with God. So that's on one end of the spectrum, and, and on the other, it, it, we seek to really earn God's favor by our, our own works. As I said, we, we also neglect God's grace um, because we, we, we don't realize in the source for our change. The source for our change is, is not us. And not only do we receive that upon the moment of salvation, but as we live our Christian life, God's grace sustains us and empowers us to live a life that is honoring to him. So we're, we're never getting beyond that. So going on to verse 3, uh, Paul uses an illustration. He uses the illustration of, of baptism uh, and to, to really picture as to what is going on here, how we are united with Christ, and how we are able to live a life that is free from sin. Uh, this baptism, I mean, was something that everyone would have understood in the early church, something that we understand as, as well. Um, and um, it, it is... Um, it is interesting here uh, because essentially all Christians would have been baptized during that time. Um, it, I, I read that a, a non-baptized Christian would have pretty much been non-existent. The pattern for baptism is, is after conversion pretty much immediately uh, getting baptized. Um, and I know we have that a little bit different today, but we understand just the, the picture here and what Paul is painting for us. Uh, and, and what it shows here is that our union with Christ shows why we are to live a life in rejection of sin and pursuit um, of holiness. Because in the same way that Jesus was, was buried, that, that, that's essentially what's happened to our sin. Our old life is buried. And as Jesus was raised to new life, we are raised to new life. And so just a wonderful picture of, of this is an outward symbol of an inner transformation in our lives. And, and that's what we see uh, Paul is, is getting at here. And, and as we do that, we, we, we are saying, I have surrendered my life completely to Christ. I'm, I'm following him, and I am, and I am not turning back. I, I, I'm living my life now in a rejection of sin, and I live in, 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 a, in a way of pursuing holiness and obedience unto God because I have a new king now. I'm, I'm part of a different kingdom. I, I, my old master, um, Satan, sin, is behind me. Now I'm pursuing Christ. And so, uh, that's what we see here, that we are united with Christ in his, both his death and in his resurrection. And so continuing on, uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see more how we are free from the dominance of sin uh, as a result of our union with Christ. Picking up in verse 6, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life 
he lives, he lives to God. So we're see not only are we united with Christ, but we are also freed from the present power of sin in our lives. We are freed from the present power uh, of sin in our lives. And, and as, as I've mentioned, we, as I mentioned briefly, Sometimes as we live our Christian life, you know, we, 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 we receive him, we're saved, we know that. But then as we move forward in our Christian life, we just think it's kind of all up to us. It's all up to us to, to work and, and just do the best we can and you know, hope, hope God doesn't get too mad at us, that kind of thing. But that's really a, an incorrect way to really uh, view the Christian life. Uh, and from the scriptures, we see that the, the only thing that's going to change us is God's power working in us. And... and the way in which that happens is through the Holy Spirit. So as we receive Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. He is active in our lives. And we see that in verse 6, that our old self is crucified. Like when you're crucified, you were dead. That means the old self is dead. The, the idea here is, is that um, the old self is rendered powerless in our lives. And before you meet Christ, you have no control over your sin. You are a slave to it. You, you can try to do better. You may make some progress, but you're going to only fall back into it because you have no power in and of yourself to free yourself from that, to free yourself from that bondage. But once Christ comes into your life, you are set free. Sin is rendered powerless, and it has no more reign in your life. So we need to ask ourselves the question, then, why do I continue to sin if this is the case if, if sin is rendered powerless uh, what, what, why, how, why is it still so hard to resist temptation why is that and I think John MacArthur does a, a, a good job at explaining this I want to read his quote briefly it says the tyranny and penalty of sin both in and over the Christian's life have been broken but sin's potential for expression in his life has not yet been fully removed. His human weaknesses and instincts make him capable of succumbing to Satan's temptations when he lives apart from the Spirit's word and power. He is a new, redeemed, holy creation incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. So why it is true that we are free from the power of sin, we still live in a world that is very much present with sin. Sin is pervasive um, in our world and that naturally comes into our lives. So while, while Jesus has freed us from sin in the positional sense, uh, practically we are free from it, but yet we still struggle with it because we are human, because we still have a, a flesh that is, is pulled towards the things of the world. We get tired, we get irritable, irritable, angry, jealous, lustful, prideful. All these things are still nagging at us and vying for our attention. But yet we have a different approach to it now. As before we were powerless over it, we have power over it through the work of the Holy Spirit. And um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a British pastor, he, he gave an illustration that, that really helped me understand this, and I hope that it will be beneficial for us this morning. Uh, he, he says it, you know, it is really like this once a person comes to Christ. He says, picture two fields that are only separated by one road. One, road, one field is owned by Satan, and the other field is owned by God. Before salvation, it's like the man was working in Satan's field, and he was totally under his control, and he had no way to escape it. But when he accepts Christ, he is now working in God's field. He crosses the road and works in the other field. And so now he's under God's control. 
And as he plows the field, he's, he's tempted to go back to the other field. And, and at times his ten- attention gets pulled away because Satan is still barking orders at him like he's his master. But the reality is that he is no longer a servant of that field and under that master. He, the master of the first field, Satan's field, he's now powerless to bring him back into the field in which he previously worked in. So even though there's a temptation, there's a drawback, that's, that's not who you work for anymore. We have a new master, and we serve a different king. We serve a good king who has redeemed us from the penalty of sin, and he has also freed us from the power of sin. And I do hope that this brings you great hope this morning. Uh, I, I, know, I know it has to me, and after just hearing this, I'm like, wow. You know, my, my approach to sin should be different because we can simply fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, you know, I don't really have any power over sin. I just kind of have to do the best I can until I you know, die and go to heaven one day. But that's not the reality. God has allowed us and given us the ability to walk in freedom and victory today um, because of the cross, because of the gospel. And so um, the reality is that are we going to be perfect in this? Absolutely not. Um, but will we make progress? And, and the answer is absolutely yes. And, and will God be with us through this? And the answer, again, is, is certainly yes. Um, and there are times where we fall back into our old way of living. Uh, but God loves us enough not to keep us there. Amen. He loves us enough that he, he, he's not going to leave us in, in a place of rebellion against him. If you truly know Christ, you can't stay there because... That is essentially not who you are. It is not who you are. And so, we, we, we see that uh, we are no longer powerless, but we have victory and power um, because of the gospel. Um, so, uh, picking up here in, in just our, our, our concluding verses, in verses 11 through 14, it says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. And, and now we see a, a transition here that Christ actually commands us to live free because of the gospel. And so we, we see a focus on the first uh, verses here. It focuses on what Christ has done for us, how we're united with him, how he has uh, taken away the power of sin. But now he commands us to live a life uh, in resistance of sin in pursuit of holiness. And, and that's, not by, that's not by accident. The order is, is not confused. The order is that because Christ is done, that's how we do. We, we don't do and then Christ is done, but we are empowered to, to live free because Christ has set us free. And so, uh, again, MacArthur helpfully says, For a Christian to live out the fullness of his life in Christ, for him to truly live as the new creation that he is, he must know and believe that he is not what he used to be. So once we know who we are, that, that, that's when we can change. Verse 12 uh, comes to the conclusion that people know 
who know Christ should not tolerate sin in their life. That is no longer our identity. We are dead to sin. Galatians 5 uh, sheds some helpful light on this as we see the same author, Paul. He says in Galatians 5, 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And further down in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the sins that we were once hungry for, the things that we thought would bring us satisfaction, and it really didn't give it to us, now that's, that, that's flipped. Now we have a developed hunger for righteousness. We have a developed hunger for the things of God. And so we are actually commanded here to do something, and the command is to present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And, and the idea here of present is to place at someone's disposal. It's the idea of, of investing your time, thoughts, and your actions in the things of God. So because of our new identity, we willingly do this. We present ourselves to God because we love Him, because we want to walk in a life of obedience. And, and this changes everything from the top down to what we think about, to what we do, how we spend our time, what we listen to, uh, what things we hold as important in our lives. All that begins to change. And, and before, we, we lived life simply seeking to glorify ourselves, seeking to do what would be best for us. But now we have changed because we seek to honor God and do what pleases Him the most in our lives. So I'm going to ask you, how, how are you presenting yourself? Are you presenting yourself to God uh, and godliness? Or are you presenting yourself to ungodliness? Who, whose disposal are you placing yourself at this morning? Because there's really no non-surrender here. Either you're submitting to righteousness or to unrighteousness. And if you refuse to submit to righteousness, by default, you're submitting to unrighteousness. So, what, again, deeper, what, what, what controls your life? Uh, what, what matters most to you? And, and are the things that you do in your life, are they reflecting a submission to God or a submission to sin? So he, he ends this section saying that you know, we are not under law, but we are under grace. And grace did what the law could never do. Uh, gra- uh, the law could not free us from sin, but only grace could. Grace provides freedom. And as we embrace God's undeserved grace, we, we not only begin to live forever, but we live in the now. We live in present freedom. To illustrate this, I, I heard a story by a... a um, a teenager named Stuart Briscoe, he was drafted into the Marines during the Korean War, actually. And when he was uh, in the military, he was under the strictest um, of rules, as his sergeant major's dominating personality and authority uh, demanded that. And he, he really didn't realize just how much this man had controlled his thoughts and his life, uh, really until after he had left the Marines. And after he had left, he, he realized his newfound freedom that he had. And so it, it talks about how he, he would put his hands in his pockets, he would whistle, he would even slouch, all these things that he couldn't do in the Marines. Now he realized, hey, I can relax. I'm not, I'm not part, of, part of that anymore. Uh, but then when he was out on the street one day, he saw his superior. And, and just out of instinct, he, he, he immediately straightened up and, and, and got into posture. But then he realized, I'm, I'm not in the military anymore. And, and, and this man has no authority over me in, in the way that he used to. So then he just relaxed, and he said, and he thought to himself, there's, there's nothing that this 
superior can do anything about. And that really pictures our, our posture towards our sin. Before we were enslaved to it, we, 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 we were simply uh, subject to its commands and its authority, but now we are free. And, and we can relax and say, I'm part of a new kingdom now. I serve a different master. And he has set me free, and therefore I can, I can live free. So as we think, okay, how, how did I get here? There are times in our lives that we wonder that in, in, in our sin, and we say, okay, is, is there really any hope for me? Does God even love me more despite all the ways that I have, that I have struggled to, to free myself from this? But the reality is we, we, we can't free ourselves. Um, but there is hope in the gospel that Christ can set us free. And so as a believer, per, perhaps even now, you're, you're, just, you're discouraged and you're thinking, yeah, I go back to this in time and time and time again. And I, and I really don't know what to do and I don't know if there's any hope for me. But there is, there is hope. Because uh, we can remember that our old self was crucified. And, and now that through the Spirit, we have the ability to walk in newness of life. Because as Jesus got out of the grave, so did we with him, as, as we now walk in a new life. And perhaps you're hearing you're saying, okay, I, 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 I get what you're saying, but um, may, maybe you're not a Christian. You say, okay, well, how does this apply to me? You say, we, we want you to receive that. We want you to receive that uh, soon, uh, to become a part of God's family and to be free from your sin and really put on the path that God um, has intended for your life to even, even be happy or find any kind of joy in. Um, so, as God sets us free, He also makes us free, and I pray um, this morning that we will that we will walk in that truth. Uh, so, may will you pray with me, uh, Father God? We we do love you, and I, I thank you for this wonderful truth um, that you have freed us from the dominance of sin, and it is no longer our master; it has no authority over us, God. But I do pray that we would. Uh, that we would submit to that, and that we would embrace this truth, God, and submit ourselves to righteousness. Uh, and, and as your Spirit works through us and gives us the desires to pursue holiness, God, I pray that we wouldn't grieve him, um, but that we would walk in accordance with him, God, and that we would experience joy in life um, because you have changed our lives, God. And so, God, we thank you for setting us free, uh, and may we walk in the freedom that you have given us. We pray this in your good name, Jesus. Amen.